And many of us are probably familiar with this saying. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Columbus discovered a new world over in Europe for many, many centuries. Uh, they, they didn't really realize that there was land over here. But then 1492, Columbus went on an expedition, discovered what's known as the New World. Today, down in Havana, Cuba, there is a memorial, um, a, a statue of sorts, celebrating and commemorating Columbus's discovery of the New World. And I want to point your attention specifically to a part right there in the center. It's a globe. And there are three words wrapped around that globe. Those three words are in Latin. And those three words are this, non plus ultra. Now, since I I don't think many of us, if any of us, really know Latin, what non plus ultra means is no more beyond, meaning that there's nothing else beyond what we currently know or nothing else beyond where we currently are. And this phrase, non plus ultra, was the motto for Spain, which is the country that sent Columbus out, it was the model of Spain for several centuries, the 13th century, 14th century, 15th century, because Spain really prided themselves in their exploration of the world. They were one of the main countries that would send out explorers all over the world, and Spain really felt like if there's anything to be explored out there, we've already explored it. There's nothing else beyond what we've already explored. No more beyond, non plus ultra. And even on the edge of maps, you would see uh, written on the side back then, non plus ultra, that there would be maps and somewhere out in the middle of the ocean, see non plus ultra, there's nothing else that comes beyond this point. But then 1492 came, Columbus discovered the new world, and as soon as word got back to the king of Spain that there was a new world over here, the king instantly commanded that wherever that phrase is used throughout the Spanish world, One word must be dropped from that phrase. And that's why when you see this monument to Columbus down in Havana, Cuba, there is a statue of a lion standing there ripping off some of the words, specifically the word non. Because then uh, the official motto became plus ultra, more beyond. Christopher Columbus was a man who had the courage to go explore places that hadn't been explored before. He thought outside of the box. He thought beyond what the current level of knowledge was, which is really quite a rare trait because most humans really are stuck in in terms of thinking about what they already know or what's familiar to them, what's right around them. Columbus pushed the envelope to go beyond non plus ultra to discover that there is more beyond. Jesus was another one of those people who looked beyond what was already known by human beings, and he pointed to the fact that there is more beyond our current level of understanding in terms of our understanding of God, our understanding of the world around us, and even our understanding of what happens after death. Now, here's why all this matters to us. It's because among us as human beings, there is a 100% mortality rate. Every one of us at some point will die. And I've talked with many people through the years, actually hundreds of people, about what do you think happens after you die? Where will you go? What will happen to you? And one of the things I've come to realize is that the vast majority of people, even though they recognize their death is going to happen sometime, they really have very little confidence or assurance on what's the next step for them after they die. Many people I talk with do hope there's some sort of heaven. They think there's some sort of heaven. But they really aren't extremely confident that they're going to go there. They may have, like I said, a degree of hope but not a confidence. 
And some people, you know, they just say, well, for me, it's basically non-plus ultra. There's no more beyond death on this earth. That when I die, I go in the ground and I rot and that's it. Jesus came to say, no, plus ultra. There is more beyond this life. One of the things I found as I've conducted funerals is that people like to cling to that hope that there is more beyond. Uh, so far in my time at Freedens, I've conducted 21 funerals. Uh, a lot of those are for, for people within the church, and a good handful of them are for people outside the church because I partner with a, a funeral home here in town to help with families who don't have a church home or a pastor to conduct the funeral. But in those 21 funerals, every single one has had family members or friends who have clung to that hope of some sort of afterlife. Now, to be sure, they don't all hope in, um, in heaven, per se, as the Bible teaches it. But, but there, are, there are a significant percentage of the people in all of these times of loss who cling to something coming up after the death of their loved one that will bring them a degree of hope. As I said, Jesus came to say, plus ultra, there is more beyond this life. And today I want to turn to a passage in John chapter 11 where Jesus talks about what does come after that life and really what is, what's entailed in what happens after death. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to John 11. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab a Bible from the pew or the chair in front of you. We are continuing our I Am series today. I Am is all about a series of statements that Jesus made during his ministry. They said, I am, and then followed by some phrase. He said, for instance, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. This week we're looking at Jesus' statement about I am the resurrection and the life. And this passage in John 11 is really, uh, it's a really neat and powerful passage when we dig into it. And so um, I'm really hoping the day that God speaks to us in a powerful way through his spirit and through his word that, that we'll have fresh eyes to see um, see that there is more beyond life on this earth. So let's pray that, that God would be our teacher today. Lord, we pray that you will guide us today. We thank you that there is more beyond this life, that we are not confined to just what takes place here and now, and that when our lives on this earth are done, that that's not the end. Lord, I pray that as we dig into John chapter 11 today, that you will teach us what it looks like to have faith in Christ, a faith that takes us beyond death and into eternity, into a better life, into a hope and a confidence. So please guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this, at this passage in three different parts. We won't read every single verse in this passage due to the length, uh, but we're going to start out by looking at verses 1 through 6. Right here, John says, beginning in verse 1, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So here we see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus is a man who is very sick. And so Mary and Martha, his sisters, sent word to Jesus saying, Hey, Lazarus is sick. And basically the idea is probably something along the lines of, Can you come help him out? And Jesus had a very close relationship with Mary, Martha, 
and Lazarus. Uh, I would say that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus may very well have been Jesus' best friends apart from the 12 disciples. Now, obviously, Jesus spent a lot of time with the 12 disciples. But he also spent a significant amount of time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He spent time in their house. He had meals with them. He talked with them a lot. They were very special to him. And even in this passage, we see it said that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he had a deep affection for them. And and this request, I imagine, was very different than requests that Jesus would get from just random people on the streets who would come up to him and say, Jesus, I'm sick. Can you help me out? Or can you help my relative? Because Jesus didn't have a prior relational connection with those people. But a word came from Mary and Martha saying that Lazarus is sick. And I imagine that meant more to Jesus at that point. It's interesting, though, to see Jesus' response. Verse 5, we see Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yeah, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Other translations, which I think capture it well, say, Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there. So, it says, I mean, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so therefore he stayed where he was. And you hear that, and it sounds very counterintuitive. Jesus... If you really cared for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, wouldn't you want to go and help out? But it says, no, instead Jesus decided, you know, I love them a lot, so I'm going to stay here rather than going and helping. It can seem confusing, but we'll see a little bit later in this passage why Jesus chose to do that. But what this points to is that there was a plan in place, specifically Beyond pain, beyond the pain of the sorrow and suffering and the impending death of Lazarus, beyond that pain is the plan of God. Oftentimes, when we face a significant health crisis, face the loss of a loved one, our world and our vision of what's going on in life gets very narrow. We're very focused in on the the circumstances at hand and our sense of loss, our sense of fear. But Jesus, in the midst of hearing that his good friend Lazarus is sick, very sick, Jesus keeps the perspective on the larger picture that God has a bigger plan of what he's going to carry out here. And so Jesus is able to keep this perspective and recognize beyond the pain of what's going on, there's a plan that is being fulfilled and Jesus is carrying out that plan here. Now, I think we need to recognize, though, that when people are in the midst of a severe hardship, especially a loss of a loved one, the last thing they probably need to hear you say is, you know, just hang in there. God has a plan in all this. Romans 8.28 is a verse that really backs up this idea of God having a plan even in pain and sickness. Romans 8.28 says that, um, that those who love God, who are called according, or God works all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Even when we go through hardships and trials and challenges, God's weaving all those together for our good and for his glory. But I'll tell you that one of the worst things you can ever say to someone who's in the heat of the raw emotions of loss of a loved one, one of the worst things you can ever do is quote a verse like that. It's not because those verses aren't true, because they are true, and God does have a plan. But in that heat of the moment when people are undergoing severe sense of loss and hardship, what they need more than your wise words or your loving shoulder to cry on, a listening ear, a warm hug to say, hey, I'm here with you. That's what people need in those times. 
I was at a district conference with our uh, denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America. I was at the district conference this last week, um, and the speaker there was a man named Craig Williford. He was, uh, and he actually still is, the president of the seminary I attended, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And Dr. Williford was sharing about how his adult son tragically died a couple years ago. Uh, he contracted some sort of bacterial pneumonia, and in the course of a very short period of time, he was gone. And so woven through what Dr. Williford was sharing at the conference were a number of stories about this loss and various perspectives and experiences he had and his family had from this. And as you can imagine, the whole family was and still is reeling from this very significant loss. And in one of the times that Dr. Williford was sharing a story about the death of his son, he started out the story with these words. Since I've become a Christian, I have not punched anyone. And, and you hear him say that, and so I imagine, okay, probably sometime before he was a Christian, he punched people. But now, now, since he's become a Christian, this president of the seminary has not punched anyone. But he went on to say that there was one time very soon after his son's death that he was this close to punching a guy. So close, in fact, that he actually had his fists in a ball. And he had to talk himself out of punching this guy. Because this guy, who was a very well-meaning man, was talking with Dr. Williford. And they were talking about the death of Dr. Williford's son. And this guy, along the course of this conversation, said, You know, life goes on. Life goes on. If you've experienced any sort of loss, you probably know what that's like to have people who are well-meaning, but just are insensitive or maybe even downright rude. It is true that life will go on, that, that tomorrow will come, and that at some point we'll resume some degree of normalcy. Yet in the moment of that loss, the idea that life goes on, God has a plan, he'll take care of it, just trust him, those things seem very trite, and they aren't necessarily what's needed in that situation. Yet even here in this passage, we have this powerful reminder that even beyond the pain that we experience in this world, there's a plan that God is working out, and that is something that we do need to cling to. We face many storms in life. If, you've, if you have your driver's license, you've probably experienced a time uh, where you're driving through a very significant downpour, and you can't really see much that's in front of you. Now, sometimes it's safest just to pull over until the downpour passes. But there are other times when you're able to continue forward, even though you aren't able to see, say, more than 10, 15 feet ahead of you, and how do you drive in those circumstances? If you don't have a, a, a vehicle in front of you to follow, odds are good what you're doing is trying to follow the lines that indicate where your lane is. And you're hopefully going slow enough to be able to follow those lines. But those lines are your safety net. Those lines are what are going to guide you safely to your destination if you're able to follow them. And I think it's the same type of thing with understanding that God is still in control, that he still has a plan even if we don't understand it completely is that we'll face storms in life where we can't see very far ahead. We can't understand what's going on. We don't know, don't know where exactly we're going. But if we can cling to the fact that God is still in control, that he's still God, and that he has some plan that he's working out, that can help get us through. And so Jesus reminds us here in his actions with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that he does have a plan. Now, I recognize that this doesn't solve all the challenges we face and such. 
In a month, we're going to start a new sermon series. It's just going to be a short one on the book of Habakkuk. And the subtitle of the sermon series is When God Seems Unfair. Because there are certainly times in life when the circumstances that we face really don't seem fair. And we have those big questions of where is God right now? Why is this working out in this way in my life? And you may hear this name Habakkuk and be like, who in the world is he? Well, he was a prophet back in Old Testament times. Uh, We don't hear many people naming their kids Habakkuk anymore. But there's a lot that we can learn from this very short book back in the Old Testament about God and about clinging to God even through those hard times. So I encourage you to stay tuned in about a month when we start this study in Habakkuk. But Jesus points to the fact that beyond pain is a plan of God. Now I want to skip ahead in this passage to verse 17 to see what happens next. Jesus at this point, had a few days have passed and he's traveled to where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. So pick up with me in verse 17. And it says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. So we see that Jesus has finally arrived at where Mary and Martha are, but we also see that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Now let me explain the timeline of how all this occurred. There was a messenger four days earlier who had left from Mary and Martha to take word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Jesus was about one day of travel time from where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. So the messenger took one day to get to Jesus. Remember that Jesus then decided he's going to spend a couple more days where he was. So then we're up to day three. And then Jesus, when he decided to go to Mary and Martha, took one day of travel to get there. So that's four days uh, between the time the messenger left and the time that Jesus got there. And so Lazarus obviously died very soon after the messenger left to go find Jesus. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. And when Martha comes out and greets Jesus, she says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. And I hear in that a compliment and a complaint. The compliment is she's saying, Jesus, if you'd been here, you would have the power to save him. He would be healed now. He wouldn't be dead in the tomb. But the complaint is pretty obvious as well. Saying, Jesus, why didn't you come earlier? you had come, Lazarus would still be alive. And so she's saying, look, Lazarus is dead now. There's nothing we can do. But Jesus says, look, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. It's the I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And what Jesus is pointing to here is that beyond death is the hope of better life. Beyond death is the hope of better life. He's literally, when he's talking about this resurrection and life, he's pointing to heaven. Heaven being a place that when people believe in Christ, 
that they will go and have a life that causes this life here to completely pale in comparison because heaven is a place where we will be fully in God's presence. It's a place where there's no more sorrow or pain or tears. It's a glorious place. And Jesus says that whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And so what he's pointing to is the reality that death does not have the final say for those who believe in Christ. In reality, death is, is temporary, really, as sleep. And in fact, a number of times in the New Testament, even earlier in this passage, in the part that we skipped over, for instance, back in verses 11 through 14, even Jesus refers to death as sleep. Because just as sleep is temporary, so death just holds a person temporarily because then there will simply become a new chapter, a much better, longer chapter of eternal life in heaven. So after or beyond death is the hope of a better life, and that's what Jesus offers to those who believe in him. Now I want to jump ahead to verse 32 to bring this passage to a conclusion and to see where the story leads. And at this point, Mary, the sister that at first had stayed behind, now Mary has come out to see Jesus as well. And it says in verse 32, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you can see Mary and Martha, these sisters, they're thinking just about the same thing right here. If you'd been here, Jesus, our brother wouldn't have died. Verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped it with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now here in this passage, I mean, we see there's a lot going on here, but we have in this passage the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five, two words, Jesus wept. And this is a response that I think can give us a lot of comfort when we're grieving the loss of a loved one. Because if Jesus weeps at death, that means that we should be completely justified and validated in our grieving and our weeping over a loved one as well. Grief is healthy. Grief is good. It's a good process to go through to release those emotions. But I also think it's very curious um, and kind of profound that Jesus is weeping here because Jesus knew that just in a few moments he was going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. So I don't think Jesus' weeping was quite in the, along the same lines as our weeping over the loss of a loved one because Jesus knew, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes. So why was Jesus weeping at this point? I think Jesus was weeping partly 
because he recognized the brokenness of this world. He recognized that death hurts, that death stinks, that death is not natural. You see, when God created this world, he created it without death being a part of the equation. But then when sin entered the world through human beings just like us, when sin entered the world, with it came death. And that death causes immense pain and grief and heartache even up to our current day. And I, I think that Jesus recognized the pain and the heartache caused by death, recognized how unnatural death is, and that grieved his heart as he saw the people around him who he cared for deeply grieving the death of Lazarus. Now, if you're a parent, you probably have experienced times where your children have done things that have grieved your heart. And sometimes they do things that grieve their hearts too. And it's amazing how sad it can be when we see our, our children doing things that hurt themselves. I remember when I was young, um, sometimes I get really upset. And for some reason, when I get really upset or angry, I would break stuff that I really liked. It was a way of releasing those emotions. It makes no sense at all. And I remember how sad that would make me in retrospect as I'd miss that thing I just broke. And then it would make, I, I've heard my mom many times talk about how sad she would get when I'd rip up stickers that I really liked or I'd break a toy that I liked. And it's just, I don't know, it's just some sinful expression of, of anger or, or just bad decisions. But I seem to have passed that trait on to my son in some way or another, even though I don't do that anymore. Um, there's this book that he really likes. He loves books. This is one of those really cool books that you, every page has something that you move, and, and it's really cool like that. And Micaiah loves, loves, or he loved this book. He hasn't used it that much for a while. Um, but a few months ago, we were looking at this book together, and I was kind of paying attention, kind of not paying attention. All of a sudden, I hear this ripping on the back page. And I looked at him and said, Micaiah, don't rip that book. You like that book. And then I looked away for a minute. About a minute later, hear a big rip. And here's what happened. There was this last page that he loved this last page. It has these pictures of all these animals on it. And he had ripped it out. Not quite sure why he did that. But my heart broke for him. And it especially broke a few moments later when he started crying because his treasured book was broken. I mean, he'd, he'd torn it up himself. It was a bad decision. I mean, it could even be equated with sin. But he was grieved over that. And as a parent, my heart was grieved to see his grieving over how a bad choice had broken something that he really treasured. And I think that Jesus has a very similar response here in this passage of Jesus sees the pain that death causes. He knows that, you know, death has come into the world because of the effects of sin. Our own sin is the reason that we have death in this world. But that grieves Jesus to see our grief and our pain as a result of the brokenness of this world. And so we see that Jesus, he, he's deeply troubled in the spirit. He, he's weeping. He's sad. But Jesus also has a plan that he's carrying out. And so he walks over to that grave. Mary, Martha says, Jesus, don't do it. It's kind of like a, a child going over to a stove. A parent instinctively says, don't touch that stove. It's hot. That's kind of what Martha's doing. She's saying, Jesus, don't open that, that, that rock on that tomb because it's going to stink. Lazarus has been dead for four days. But Jesus has a plan. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus miraculously raises back to life. 
Now what this points to is that beyond resurrection, there is the glory of God. You have the question of why did Jesus raise Lazarus back to life? Lazarus would eventually die again. But why did Jesus choose to raise Lazarus back to life? And we could point to answers like, you know, he loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus, so he wanted to help out. But I think there's a much deeper answer than that. That beyond resurrection, whether it's Lazarus's resurrection or our resurrection, is the glory of God. There are a couple of bookends to this passage. If you really studied it, you'd see them back in verse 4. It talks about the glory of God. Jesus says, look, it's for God's glory that Lazarus is sick so that God's Son might be glorified through it. That's the part of the plan that Jesus is working out through this pain, that God might be glorified. In verse 40, we see the other bookend at the end of the passage. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The reason that Jesus chose to raise Lazarus from the dead was not just to give Lazarus more life, but to give him and everyone around him a glimpse of the glory of God, of the greatness of who God is. So that when people are going to sleep that night in their bed and they're reflecting on the events of that day and thinking, wow, it's so amazing that Lazarus was dead for four days and now he's alive again. Jesus didn't want them just to think, well, that's great for Lazarus. Jesus wanted them to think, God is amazing. And Jesus is awe-inspiring. That's the reason that God raised Lazarus from the dead. And even for us, if our faith is in Christ, we can have hope and confidence that we will be raised from the dead too at some point in the future. Even for us, the greatness and the greatest part of heaven is not going to be being reunited with family and friends who we love, whose faith was in Christ, even though that will be great. The greatness of heaven is not so much in the fact that there's no more pain and suffering and death and sorrow, even though that will be great too. The best part of heaven is that we will be in God's presence, beholding his glory in ways that we've never seen it here on this earth. So beyond resurrection is the glory of God. Now, I I mentioned earlier, I was talking about non plus ultra, about how after Columbus discovered the new world, how non was taken out of that phrase. And so now the national motto of Spain is plus ultra, more beyond On Spain's flag, which you see up there, there's this crest or this emblem that actually has the words plus ultra in it. You see those two columns there? Uh, There are banners in front of the columns. On the banners, it says plus ultra, more beyond. Before Columbus discovered the new world, there is a sense of trepidation, of fear of what lies beyond the edges of that map. People didn't know, and that fear of the unknown can paralyze a lot of people and cause a lot of uncertainty and mental anguish. It's the same thing with death. We meet a lot of people in this world who are scared of death. They do everything they can to hold that off. They don't want to think about the reality of death. As I said, I've talked with hundreds of people about what do you think happens after you die. Most people don't like to think about that question. They want to assume that they'll have a long time before they have to come face to face with that reality. But Jesus comes to take away all fear that's associated with death. He says, plus ultra, there's more beyond. And the more beyond comes when we believe in Christ. That's really the application point of this whole passage. Jesus says seven times through the course of this passage, believe, believe, believe. Wherever we are spiritually, we need to come to that point where we trust in Christ, where we look to Christ 
to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. Where we look to Christ to get us through the challenges and the hardships. Even after a person's been a follower of Christ for a long time, there can still be a, a lot of challenges, a lot of mental anguish, a lot of sorrow and grief. And especially in those storms of life, we need to cling to God to keep pressing forward. Because Jesus is the resurrection and life. He will bring good even out of the challenges that we are facing. And we will bring, he will bring glory to himself as we persevere. And if we do persevere, if we cling to Jesus as the resurrection and the life, we will be able to say along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, what a, what a profound uh, perspective. That, that rather than death being the ultimate loss, death actually is gain. And that's the perspective that we can have when we cling to Christ as the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to bring hope. Without you, there's really no confident hope, no solid rock that we can stand on in this life, especially when we look at the reality of death and our own mortality. God, this, this topic brings to mind all kinds of emotions. I know it, it's a challenging topic for every one of us in varying ways because of losses we face in our own lives. Guys, you know, as I was preparing for this message this week, I just kept thinking of so many people, even right here in our midst this morning, who have faced significant loss. And you know, there's no way I could ever list off all the people who have experienced loss of a loved one, whether it's a, a mom or a dad, a grandparent, sister, brother, even a child, good friend. Lord, we acknowledge that the pain of death is very real. It rips us to pieces at times. And I pray for each person here that when we face that loss, that you will give us the grace that we need to persevere, the grace we need to look to you, the grace we need to grieve well. Jesus wept, and that gives us permission to weep as well. Lord, this morning I do want to specifically lift up a few families who, whose loss is especially poignant, even though all these losses are real. I lift up... Um, Terry and Cheryl Bartle, as they continue to grieve the loss of Eric, their son. We know that even though many months have passed since that time, that loss is still very real and that grief is still present. And I pray that you will help them to cling to you, that you will help them to continue to process well. God, carry them through this time. And I pray that you will bring others into their lives who can help walk with them through this time as well. I pray for Lytha Miller and her family as they continue to grieve the loss of Gary. What an untimely... Death, the very sad thing, Lord, I pray that you will continue to strengthen her faith. We know her faith is strong, but we know that this is a very challenging time. And I pray that she will not be walking this journey alone, but that you will bring other people, especially other women around her, to support her, to be that listening ear, to be that crying, that shoulder to cry on, to be just that presence of Christ in a tangible way in her life. God, I also lift up Katie R. Helger and her family as... The loss of two parents over the last few years is something that, that no one should ever have to face. We grieve with her knowing that that is a, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a sad reality. It's a part of life in this broken world. But we lift up Katie that you will help her to grieve well, to release emotions of loss, to transition well to the new normal, even though that new normal is not a normal she ever really wanted. God, we pray that you will give her and all of us in this room as we deal with loss, hope in Christ. 
Lord, we look around this world, I mean, from the video about AIDS earlier to just so many people around this world who die every single day who are all in need of Christ. I pray that you will be at work around this world and even in the lives of our friends and family members who need Christ to open their eyes to the fact that plus ultra is true. There is more beyond, but that more beyond comes best through faith in Christ. And we thank you once more, Jesus, that you came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, that you are the resurrection and life. And we cling to that truth that through you, death has been defeated, that it's just a momentary sting, but that you've taken the sting out of it. We thank you and praise you and pray these things in your name. Amen.